Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Hail to Pit podcast here on DK Pittsburgh Sports Podcast Network. I'm your host, Gary Morgan. With me, as always, is the eminently well-traveled Corey Crisson, uh, fresh back from Virginia, watching the Pitt football team take on the Cavaliers. But we're going to start with basketball, Corey. How do you feel about that, brother? Ooh, I feel okay about it always. College basketball and a discussion. I got my iced coffee in hand right here. I got a bacon, egg, and cheese sitting in my stomach, which, I mean, listen, if you're ever just wondering, what do I do for breakfast? Go bacon, egg, and cheese on an everything bagel, grab an iced coffee of your choice, and your day will be better infinitely. Um, That's perfectly appropriate when you're not doing a video podcast. When you're just doing, when you're just doing a podcast, you can get away with those poppy seeds. And all mm. that in your teeth, I get it. Amazing, amazing. Uh, what was so let's not start amazing? With the pit basketball because it was the backyard brawl, <laughs> and you know I wanted to get excited about it. I knew better, unfortunately. Um, I sat back to watch this game, and I expected basically to start seeing Pitt try. Uh, I knew they didn't have the talent to keep up with them, but I wanted to kind of just see, hey, some of these new pieces getting introduced, start seeing where they fit, start seeing what what things look like. Um, they were still missing a lot of people. But I got to be honest, Corey, and I know you were blessed to not have to watch this one. It, it was a mess, just a hot mess. The, the offense looked like they were forcing it. Didn't look like they had a nice set. The defense, I can't even sit here and tangibly tell you I thought they had a defensive philosophy. I couldn't tell if they were trying to play zone or man or if maybe they had just given up and figured they'd just run to the backcourt and hope. Well, this is why I was proceeding with caution into this season with Pitt. And... I'm not going to name names, but quite a few of my media contemporaries, national, local, whoever, were pretty high on Pitt and saying, you know, I see 8 seed, 9 seed, 10 seed, closer to 500, you know, winning an ACC tournament game. And I said, hold on. I need to see it before I believe it. I need to see Pitt play somebody. I need to see Jeff Cable. I need to see all of these transfers. I need to see John Hughley healthy. 
and Will Jeffries healthy. I need to see a lot more before I can say Pitt is going to be a better team this year. So I, I was the one to pump the brakes on this. So let's talk about Friday in comparison to Monday. Monday, of course, the win against UT Martin. That team looked really gelled. That team looked really sturdy, consistent. Blake Hinson, of course, was scoring. Nelly Cummings was passing the ball at will. He was facilitating. Fede Federico had a great game underneath. Inferior opponent, but that's what you do against inferior opponents. Now you're playing against a team like West Virginia, who is stronger, who is more athletic, who is perhaps bigger underneath, and quite frankly, just a more even match, if not West Virginia. I think they were favored by... Uh, a few points. I don't know exactly what the spread was, but you know, West Virginia was favored in this game. How was Pitt going to respond off of what they did Monday, which was a solid win, good win against a group of five or a, a mid-major, I should say, school. I'm in football mode, mid-major school. Transition over to West Virginia. Bob Huggins, who's traditionally kind of owned Pitt in this series, you know, to quote the great John Rothstein, tougher than a long weekend at your in-laws type basketball for West Virginia. I've got I got to laugh out of you there. I love John Rothstein. But no, I mean, you you know what you're going to get when you play West Virginia. You are going to get a physical underneath. You're going to get a rock fight in the paint. You're going to get hard rebounds. You're going to have to die for loose balls. You're going to have to play physical and tough. How did Pitt respond? How about 21 personal fouls? and 19 turnovers as a team. Those two stats right there, very indicative of how things would end up. Blake Henson, who going back to the start of the exhibition schedule, had 20-plus points in each game in in those three games, limited to five points on two of nine shooting. Jamarius Burton had a decent game. Greg Elliott had a decent game, albeit he, uh, sorry, Cummings fouled out, but Elliott got injured uh, a little bit. Maybe you could paint more of a picture on that because I didn't get to watch the entire game. But Greg Elliott still played 39 minutes in this game. Like, he was he was still quite a bit, you know, everywhere for them. And Nellie Cummings fouls out. How about the fouls? Okay. Nellie Cummings fouls out. Burton has four. Hinson has four. Fede has three. Santos has three off the bench. So when you're already missing John Hughley and Will Jeffries and you get in foul trouble like that, sorry, you're screwed. I will say that the... The, the referees were brutal in this game. Uh, and I, I would not, I would not tell you that better referees would change the outcome, but I would tell you that the referees were calling things that I got to be honest. I don't, <laughs> I, and this happened for both teams. They were calling reach in fouls that just weren't blocks that just weren't charges that just weren't. It was, it was a pretty brutal performance from from the stripes in that game. So I'm not sure I take too much away from that. Going back to that Tennessee Martin game, though, you're right. It was a better performance. But there wasn't anything to stress their system. Okay, so there was no reason for them to go out of being in the zone on defense. There was no reason for them to stop doing their five-man set on offense and pass the ball around because nobody was stressing them. As soon as they take a little bit of stress, everything crumbles. There's no quarterback on the offense. And and you saw somebody like uh, Nellie Cummins really try to be, 
but he forced his way into taking some of the worst looking three pointers that I've ever seen. No reason to shoot them. Desperation, not trusting his teammates to do anything better than, than the hail Mary. He was about to throw up it. It just doesn't look disciplined. And I get this team has not been together long enough to really form any kind of bonds. But again, this year is going to be crucial for Jeff Capel and not a good start. And West Virginia is not the juggernaut they looked like against Pitt the other night. Well, Cummings, first off, Cummings more from the mid-range. He only attempted one three, but still he he pulled up quite a bit from mid-range against Tennessee Martin, and he actually made him. Um, Didn't have a great shooting night against West Virginia, four for seven from the field. However, Blake Henson and Greg Elliott combined four for 13 from three-point range. When your two best shooters are are doing that, it's not going to cut it. West Virginia, by the way, 53% from the field. I mean, you want to talk about giving open looks on defense and breaking down and missing assignments and not rotating properly. That's a t- that's the tell right there when West Virginia is making 53% of their shots. 8-21 from three, Pitt held them too. But you look, when you shoot 5-23 from three yourself and you're committing all these turnovers and you're fouling a lot and the referees are eating the whistle, it's hard to overcome all of that. So just – this was the first, like I said, this was the first test for Pitt. Now they have to regroup, face an even tougher Michigan team on Tuesday, and then we'll see what happens on Wednesday, whether it's VCU or Arizona State. I'll be in Brooklyn for those. And, you know, I want to see what Capel draws up against Michigan. And, and uh, of course, Hunter Dickinson, probably a top five player in college basketball he'll have to deal with now without potential John Hughley again, without potential Will Jeffries again. So doesn't lighten up any any bit for Pitt here. So we'll see how Capel and company respond on Tuesday. All right. We made Pitt basketball the short segment on purpose, Corey. So let's take a break, cleanse, come back, talk about something better. We're back to the H2P podcast here on DK Pittsburgh Sports. Corey and Gary with you. It's time for football. We're going to turn the page from that sad chapter of uh, sports lexicon the Pitt basketball team has become. We're going to talk about the Pitt football team, which is trying ever so hard to make themselves at least a little relevant this season and get into a bowl game. So they matched up against the Virginia Cavaliers and two plays from scrimmage into this game it's 14 nothing pit on two pick sixes i'm going to start Corey, before i turn it over to you by saying it's incredibly difficult to evaluate anything that happened in this game as soon as pit was up 14 nothing because everything changed the way they were going to run their offense changed the things they were going to try to do we heard push the ball down the field push the ball down the field and they did but we have no idea whether the plan would have worked that way or not because the defense just stepped up and took the game right away. Mm -hmm. Um, This is a Virginia team that took North Carolina to the brink last week. So, you know, I was expecting it to be a little bit more competitive than it was. Glad it wasn't. What do you think, man? 
Well, you said it right there. When something as unprecedented, and that's the word for this, as unprecedented as two pick sixes on the first two plays from scrimmage, when something like that happens, it completely, first off, defines the game. Second off, alters the game from the standpoint of coaching because now Pat Narduzzi doesn't need to rely on Keaton Slovis to throw it X amount of times. It's going to be less than that, and you can hand the ball off because you're up 14 nothing. I mean, to have your offense not set foot on the field and you're up two scores, you never see that, first of all. I, I know ESPN Stats and Info, they put a thing out, was like, we're trying to figure this out, but... Uh, We're pretty sure this is the first time this has happened or whatever, however long it's been. You'll never see this again. Pick six is on the first two plays from scrimmage. So congrats on witnessing history yesterday. Now, from that point forward, okay, let's reset here because there is 1444 left in the first quarter. There is 16 seconds off the board and Pitt is up 14 nothing. So what happens from there? Okay. You ride the strengths of your team. You ride your defense. You let your playmakers make plays on defense. You create those two turnovers. I know they didn't create any more from that point forward, which could be, uh, you know, okay. But from that point, it's don't let the offense give the game up. And guess what Pitt did? They fed their best player. They kept the passing offense simple. They didn't try They They tried some stuff down the field and, Credit to Keen Slovis where it's due. He made some good throws, and then I'll pull it back and say he did not make some great throws, which kind of is the um, what's the word I'm looking for? The stamping of what Pitt is this year. Oh, it's great. the mini it's the mini series title of the Keaton Slovis thirty for thirty. It really <laughs> is some good, some bad. Mm-hmm. So this is the, another story about the defense, and this is aside from the two pick sixes. Folks, the reason why you listen to H2P is because Gary and I are ahead of the curve. Gary, who did we talk about? One player on Pitt's defense last week that we talked about and said, when you're watching this game, key in on this player and watch how he works. I'll give you a hint. He had three sacks uh, against Virginia. Oh, Cansey, it, yeah. It's Kalijah Cansey. What did this is why, folks, you listen to H2P because we are ahead of the curve. Kalijah Cansey was a wrecking ball all day, even after the 14 point lead. Wrecking ball. Three sacks on Brennan Armstrong. He created more opportunities for John Morgan, who got back in the books, for Haba Baldonado, who got back in the books, for Deslin Alexander, who got back in the books. I mean, what more could you ask for from this defensive line? And, of course, the two interceptions were created off of pressure. Brennan Armstrong has to roll out of the pocket. He has to throw the ball early. Quez Williams is in the right spot. MJ Devonshire is in the right spot. Jumped the routes and we're off and running. I mean, this was another outstanding defensive performance from Pitt. Two weeks in a row now, by the way. The Syracuse game and now this. And if not for those two pick sixes... From the offensive standpoint and how they were handling things, the last two game flows kind of felt similar, don't you think? Yeah, I thought they were very similar. And the other thing I noted was on the offensive line side, um, 
it's one of the first games really all season where the offensive line has done a really good job of keeping Slovis clean. Mm-hmm. I didn't see him have to hop around the pocket a whole lot. I didn't see him rush to make throws. I felt like he stayed upright most of the game. And I wonder how much of that really was Owen Drexel because (laughs) he's back and suddenly everything seemed to click. When you have your starting center in there, everything changes. You get to move Jake Cradle, who, by the way, credit to him too for – the two months that he's been playing center, fine job. Great job by him. Very few, if any, mistakes. Nothing huge in terms of breakdowns or protections. And you also got to credit uh, Blake Zabovic stepping in at right guard. But now you're back to status quo on the inside. Marcus Miner at left guard, Owen Drexel at center, and Jake Cradle over at right guard. Keen Slovis, he was hit twice, and he was not sacked against Virginia. This comes a week after he only took one sack against Syracuse. So this offensive line, who's been tremendous all season at run blocking, we've talked about. They're starting to figure it out in terms of pass blocking. They're starting to do even better with keeping Keaton Slovis upright. And when you have a quarterback that's been struggling like Keaton has pretty much all season up, you know, at least up from the time he came back against Rhode Island after the Tennessee hit, after the concussion he sustained. If we saw this a couple weeks sooner, we could be talking about something different in terms of Pitt, but we're seeing it now at least. And this is as as important as it is to have the defense rolling like it is, to have that offensive line really short up, keeping Keaton upright. You saw Bob Means get down the field to make plays. We've seen Jared Wayne get down the field to make plays. At one point, I think it was 11 straight completions that Slovis had to Kanate Mumfield underneath. The passing yeah. offense... While there's still throws that Keaton has to make and do a better job of making, the offense in the passing offense has looked better than it has, you know, we could say three weeks ago, a month ago. The passing offense also had had another thing I noted yesterday that was a little different. And that was the wide receivers making plays on balls. We have seen... Keaton Slovis makes some terrible throws. We've seen him make some good throws that defenders got a hand in on. Yesterday, we got to see Bub Means in particular and Jared Wayne adjust on a ball in the air and make a play on the ball themselves. Make a, a pass that was decent into a completion. And I, I think that's an underrated thing that good wide receivers do. And, and pit wide receivers haven't done most of this season. So pretty interesting that they're finally starting to adjust to the ball in the air. I was pretty happy to see that. The touchdown that Slovis threw to Bub Means in the first quarter, which, by the way, the defense scores on its first two possessions. The offense scores on its first two possessions. It's 28 nothing. And, I mean, again, the game's over by that point. But a prime example of what you just said, Gary – was the touchdown that Slovis threw to Means. Means was kind of floating around in the back middle of the end zone. And Slovis had to... You talked earlier in the season about his ability to throw guys open. And earlier in the season, he maybe didn't show that. He threw Bub Means open on that touchdown. He put the ball in a spot where Means had to kind of run up to get. He had to kind of, 
you know, position himself almost, I don't want to say a box out, but think of when you're boxing somebody out, you're trying to clear a certain amount of space for yourself to make a play in, in basketball terms, a rebound. In football terms, it would be you're trying to create space for yourself to go up and get a football. Means did exactly that with the direction he turned to come back to the ball. And I'm not a film nerd by any means, or like an X's and O film nerd by any means, but just from watching that play, you could see it very simply what he did. All he did was angle his body a certain way. He got his hands turned a certain way. He got his head turned a certain way, and he just went up and made the grab. It made the throw look better than it probably was, which is a credit to means, which is a credit to means. For a guy that has been as inconsistent, at least early in the season, that means was, over the last few weeks, he's really found something here. So give Bud Means credit where it's due on that catch. Slovis, there was a couple plays that were missed. There was one to Jared Wayne, I remember, that was underthrown. There was one to Means on the on the near sideline that I think Means might have gotten his hands on, but it was still a little bit out of his reach. So still a tough play to play. Uh, still a tough play to make, I should say. So. There was good. There's there was the play bad. Where Jared Wayne just fell on his own, mm-hmm. making a cut. You know that could have been another people. big completion. There's a couple of people that fell, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> there really were. So, I mean, all in all, again, it's hard to take anything away from it. Like, for instance, I would continue my unbeaten streak of of bitching about Bartholomew not getting any passes, but. What was the purpose, really? <laughs> I mean, yeah. they were up 28 nothing before anybody blinked. So it's, you kind of didn't need to do it, really. Um, Not to I, be overlooked either. Uh, is he another 100 yard game? Absolutely. I mean, Not and that makes total sense because what are you going to do? You're going to feed your running backs, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it felt like they were really trying to hammer Seba Flemister in there again. Um, you know, he had some success last week against Syracuse this time, you know, they fed him the ball eight times. He only gets 38 yards. He too has been a little bit inconsistent. Um, Seems to have better vision certain days than other days. And, you know, that's something that I guess is indicative of a young running back, um, at least young as far as experience goes. And uh, he's somebody that I would like to see them work in a little bit more. Uh, He's a different body type to throw at the defensive line. I like that. But mm-hmm. I'm nitpicking at this point. They won. <laughs> they won 37-7. There's not well, much to it, say. Well, and you're not the only one because when a defense opens up 14-0, the offense scores on its first two. You're up 28-0 after the first quarter. I get that there is an element to wanting to make a statement or prove that, hey, you know, we're pissed off or prove that, hey, we're here for the end of the season, whatever it may be. And I saw more than just a couple of people say that, you know, whether it was on Twitter, whether it was even our, even in our beloved asylum, I saw it and I understand that. But when at the end of the day, you're going to take what you get and you're going to take two pick sixes in an unprecedented, unheralded, never before seen way to start the game. You're going to take two offensive drives and touchdowns to start the game. And if you're 28, nothing after the first quarter, you don't need to put a pasting on Virginia to prove a point. You know, I don't think it would have been necessary to go out and win 56 to seven unless you really were just throwing it all over them. And, and you know, it was just easy to do that. 
You know, Virginia's still not a terrible team. They're not a terrible team. They're not good, but they're not terrible either. Tony Elliott in his first season, of course, the former great offensive coordinator at Clemson, you know, he's still figuring his program out. So this was a game that Pitt had to win. This was a game that Pitt should have won. They won it in a different circumstance than probably what we all envisioned. So, you know, take it, take it as it comes, you know. Just be happy with the win. <laughs> no, because there's one thing. There's one thing that that Virginia does exceptionally well on defense, and that's get to the quarterback. Well, how could they do that down twenty eight nothing? You know, like right. you're not going to sell out to to pass rush when you're down twenty eight nothing. And I, I just think like you know we took away their greatest weapon on defense by getting ahead that far. So again. Difficult to learn anything from that game. Um, I would be interested to see what that matchup would have looked like had they not jumped out to that big lead. But, hey, I'm a Pitt fan at heart. I'm glad they won. And I'm glad they won that way. Uh, I would have to say, too, Corey, man, MJ Devonshire has really emerged this year. He really has. Both both being a ball hawk and returning punts he he's just has really really electrified things back there mm-hmm. and a red shirt junior gonna be interesting to see what his decision is at the end of the year kentucky transfer obviously a hometown kid aliquippa kid when we do our end of season awards later on i'm pretty sure we're going to mention mj devonshire as either a you know most surprising player or up and coming whatever category it may be because look we we Saw the pick six. We had the backyard brawl moment, a couple of punt returns that have been tremendous. He's took an o- he's taken over the starting cornerback job away from AJ Woods. He's had a really solid year. Um, you know, you take the good with the bad sometimes with a with a Pat Narduzzi cornerback, as you know. So the good with MJ Devonshire for the most part has out outweighed the bad. And same for Marquez Williams. Teams haven't really been throwing to Marquez Williams that much, if you've noticed that. You know, he's not popping off the stat sheet, but when a cornerback doesn't pop off the stat sheet, that usually means they're not throwing to him that much. So you can tell the respect that at least Williams is getting from opposing opposing teams. And now you can see Devonshire start to make this ascent this year. Really encouraging. Very much so. So that pretty much wraps up the football team. And I think it's time to take another quick break and come back and talk about another highly ranked team for Pitt, the number seven overall women's volleyball team. segment three here on the h2p podcast gary and Corey back with you ladies and gentlemen it is time to talk some women's volleyball and of course we'll touch on women's soccer towards the end here a little bit too with of course a ncaa tournament first the women's soccer team gathering their first win in their first appearance in the big dance but women's volleyball gary might pick up more than that by the end of the year. This is a team that is absolutely steamrolling just about everybody. Pitt women's volleyball, 25 and 2, 15 and 0 
in ACC play. They are seventh ranked in the country. And throughout the course of the season, this team has just beaten up on good teams. They lost to San Diego, number 25 in the country, early in the season. But then they come back, a 3-1 set win at number 7 BYU. A 3-0 win over number 5 Ohio State. A 3-1 win over number 10 Georgia Tech. A 3-2 win over number 2 Louisville, of course, an ACC foe. And now coming up over these next couple of days here, uh, on Friday they got number 3 Louisville in Louisville, and then number 5 Georgia Tech back home at the uh, at the Pete, actually. Peterson Event Center, this one will be at. So a team that's absolutely rolling, and I've said it not just in our asylum but also on Twitter, this team has tremendous potential to win an NCAA championship. Somebody said on Twitter, it was like, you know, the, the Pirates are the best team in Pittsburgh right now. It's like a tongue-in-cheek thing. And I said, no, if we're being serious, it's probably Pitt women's volleyball with how good they are. <laughs> I mean, they're just absolutely rolling right now. And, and that's, you know, obviously for – for not just the fall sports scene going into the winter here, but for that program, it's been nothing but tremendous to witness them all season. I mean, an 18-game winning streak in any sport is something to be impressed by. And you were talking about really their front line being dominant, and it seems like not only is that the case, they've, they've got probably the highest recruiting class in the country coming in next year to fortify it. Mm-hmm. They do. It's and crazy. By the way, this year, let me just go through their ranks within the ACC. Okay. Points per set, number one, 18.07. Hit percentage, number two in the conference. Assists, number one in the conference. Kills per set, number one in the conference. Blocks, third in the conference. Service aces, ninth in the conference. Digs, they are ninth in the conference. Like their offensive numbers are outstanding. Defensively, opponent hit percentage, first in the conference, 14.1%. Opponent assists, first in the conference. Opponent kills, first in the conference. Opponent blocks, second in the conference. Like they are absolutely just rolling everybody. Like it's not even it's not even the fact that they're just winning and they're beating all these great ranked teams. But the wins that they've actually had over these ranked teams, again, I, I talked about San Diego, the loss early in the season. That was at a tournament in College Station, Texas at Texas A&M, which, by the way, they went back and beat their next two opponents, including Hawaii, who res- who received votes at the time. But you win three sets to one against number seven in the country, 3-0 against number five, 3-1 against number 10, 3-2 against number two. So of those wins, only one game had to go to five sets. So they're putting teams away early. They're putting teams away often. And I I don't have the exact number of two set or, you know, five set victories that they've had, but I only see just by doing a quick glance, it's one and it's the, um, or it's two, actually it's, it's Louisville. And then it's Cincinnati. They had the two set, the five set victories in. So it's not like they're just, you know, getting by the skin of their teeth. This is a team that is legitimately just beating everybody up. So I'm incredibly interested to see what kind of run this team can make in the tournament. They are long. They are quick. They, they are well coached. They are, when you, when you watch volleyball, 
you have to look for timing and you have to look for anticipation and you have to look for our players in the right spots because you don't have much time to react when a ball's being hit over the net and where someone's trying to spike it back at you. When you have a front line with 6'5", 6'5", 6'2", sitting at the front, that's a good start to have is size. Number two is quickness, which they have. And they have some great outside hitters. They have some great you know, setters in the back line and, and you know, could get down and get a dig when they need it. So it's just a well-rounded, well-coached, fun team to watch. And I think this team has a ton of potential to make a run. I mean, Coach Fisher now with 250 wins at Pitt. I mean, this is it's been a good program for a while. So it's nice to see it continue. And uh, you wanted to touch on soccer as well. Yeah, of course. Pitt women's soccer. Congrats to Randy Waldrum and, and the ladies for their uh, first NCAA tournament appearance and then their first NCAA tournament win on Saturday, a one nothing victory over Buffalo uh, over at uh, Ambrose, you know, Ambrose Field over there at the Peterson Sports Complex. Um, I had a really fun time. If you haven't read it yet, uh, I had a really fun time writing a feature on this team earlier in the week. Um, you know, Coach Waldrum really made a emphasis to recruit Pittsburgh again. He he made an interesting comment to me and was like, when I first got here, and of course this was, um, you know, several years ago by this point. He goes, when I first got here, I went out on a local recruiting trip, and someone looked at me like I did something wrong. Like, what the hell are you doing here? And he goes, you know, someone told him that nobody had recruited that particular club in six years. Like that right there is a tell of what Pitt's program was about pre Randy Waldrum and about Waldrum's emphasis on recruiting local and starting from there and then going out to his radius. It turned from, I believe it was five total players from the state of Pennsylvania to having five players from Western Pennsylvania alone. And now there's 12 total from Pennsylvania on this roster. So Randy really made a point to start in the state, start in the area, and then branch out. You know, we've talked about Landy Mertz, who's their current leading scorer. She's an Upper St. Clair grad. You talk about Sarah Skupanski, who's among the ACC leaders in assists. She's in the area, I believe it's North Allegheny grad. I mean, you have Ellie Caulfield, a sophomore who stepped in. She's a Mars native. Like, Waldrum recruited local. This team is built from home first and then branched out, and they're having tremendous success with it. So, and that's by the way, I didn't know this until I talked to the team and I talked to players and I talked to coaches. They went through three ACL tears this year from players, and, and including two starters. Their leading scorer, Amanda West, t- tore her ACL in the sixth game of the season. She started off the year with six goals in five games and then tore her ACL in the sixth game of the year against Cincinnati. So when you're going through that, and then you have a preseason ACL tear, and then you have another tear of the ACL later in the season, when you have to keep flipping and adjusting and changing your starting 11 and changing your tactical lines and rotating your substitutions just to account for that alone, what a tremendous job by this coaching staff. So best of luck again to Pitt Women's Soccer going forward. And, you know, it's a really nice foundation that they've set here for the next several years. I mean, for local buy-in too, recruiting locally is not a bad idea. You know, um, I, I, I think I'll fall on my sword here a little bit. I'm not the hugest soccer fan in the world, but I, I, I do try to watch it. I try to understand it, you know, especially when the World Cup is coming around. Pretty soon. But, yeah. But 
Sarah Shapansky, for instance, you know, graduated with my younger son. So I, I know her, I've watched her play, I, you know, I've seen, I've seen them play and it gives me something to point to and be interested in a reason to go and watch a pit women's soccer game just because I've seen her play from junior high on. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's, it's interesting for me um, to see the, the local kids make it big at the local school. So I like that. And obviously they have to be talented too, but it's something that I think can help the community kind of buy in and get behind it a little bit too. Mm -hmm. 100%. I mean, that that's, Anywhere you go, you know, and of course you see that maybe more often in a mid-major where, you know, locals that are really standouts that just maybe aren't material for a power five football or power six basketball, you know, is the two big examples, you know, maybe they'll stick around and play basketball or football at their home school, you know, in the soccer sense, you know, of course it's a global game, you know, it's not the most popular sport in America and quite frankly, it never will be, but at the college level, if you can do what Randy's doing, if you could build the foundation from within and then branch out and go to your, you know, wherever it may need to be, if, even if you have to go international, you know, to, to find a couple of players. I know there's quite a few Canadian imports on this women's soccer team that are making impacts too. So if you can start the foundation here, you can get the interest going locally. I love your anecdote there about, you know, just because of Sarah Shupansky, you might be more inclined to watch this team. You know, you get more of that, you know, you get, uh, you know, you get your upper St. Clair, you got your Mars, you got North Allegheny, you know, you got three little areas right there that are now all of a sudden because of one person each invested in pit women's soccer. And that extends, of course, beyond, you know, just the state of Pennsylvania. So I love hearing that. And, I, and again, I hope nothing but the best for Randy and his, and his team. It's a really fun team, really fun to talk and get to know some of the players. And, uh, you know, we'll see what happens going forward in the tournament. Well, that's where the HTP podcast is going to be different. We're going to definitely talk about this stuff as as it continues to go on. It's not all football and basketball on the men's side. so And we'll get into wrestling at some point. Don't worry. We will, because that's going to be a good team, too. Absolutely. And I'm going to take Corey when we do that, because I'm a little bit taller. I got some leverage, and I've been working on the weight. You know, I'm pretty sure that I can take him, but we'll, we'll see. <laughs> That's all I got this week, though, man. Good stuff all in all. Um, You know, I think uh, hopefully Pitt basketball will rebound here a little bit uh, in more ways than one. So, uh, without anything else to say, hail to Pitt.